a salt flat the size of Jamaica, a cocktail called Chufli, and why the South American country is vital to your cell phone. This week, we're in Bolivia. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week we visit a place and explore its unique cuisine. And this week it's Bolivia. And we'll visit there with travel writer Shafik Meji. But first, let me tell you where I'm at. Casa de Pasto Afaca is a popular lunch spot in Stubel, Portugal, the town where I live. And it's one of many places here that's open just for lunch, no dinner. They don't have a website. They don't even have a Facebook page, but they're almost always packed around lunchtime. And the front doors open right into the street. So it's not a busy street, but while I'm here, you might hear a car go by or maybe a scooter or maybe some construction. I saw they were working on a nearby apartment when I walked over. My guest this week is Shafik Meji. Shafik is an award-winning travel writer who's written tons of travel guidebooks, including The Rough Guide to Bolivia. He's also just released his latest book, a travel memoir about Bolivia called Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. Now, Shafik is an expert on travel, especially in South America. He's been on the show before talking about Argentina and Chile and Easter Island. And now we've got him back talking about Bolivia, a place that for me and for a lot of other people as well, is kind of a blank spot. I mean, really, what do you know about Bolivia? For me, it was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a couple of Che Guevara movies, but that's about it. And then I read Shafik's book, and I got to tell you, I was amazed. Bolivia is an incredibly diverse and interesting place, and we had a great conversation about it, and I was just blown away. In fact, it was such a good talk that I'm breaking it up into two parts. Part one is this week, part two next week. Okay, enough about that. I'm starving anyway, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Chaffic Meji, welcome back to Destination Eat Drink. It's great to have you back on the show. I've wanted to talk to you ever since we talked last. You said that you were working on something with Bolivia, and I've kind of been hounding you over email to get you back on the show. Now your book is out. Crossed off the map, travels in Bolivia. Congratulations on the new publication. Oh, thank you very much, Brent. I'm I'm absolutely delighted to see, you know, have it physically in my hand after after it being in my head and on countless word documents for years really so uh so thank you so much for having me back on uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you um and uh, yeah I'm, ga- I'm glad last time we spoke that i uh, i managed to tempt you with some uh, bolivia stories and uh, yeah we can go through some of the uh, the uh, the interesting parts to this fascinating country over the next uh, uh the next episode you said in the book you wanted to avoid the stereotypes of Western writing about Bolivia. I think this is a good place to start. What are some of those stereotypes and misconceptions that folks have about Bolivia? First of all, much of much of the coverage of Bolivia it just doesn't exist. Really, it, it, it's a country that uh, you know it's twice the size of France. It's right in the geographic heart of South America. It shares borders with Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Peru, Paraguay. Um, 
but it's always overshadowed by those neighbours, and it rarely makes more than you know a fleeting appearance in the international media. And the coverage it does get typically focuses on uh, political scandals or environmental disasters, or uh, the kind of travel writing or the kind of news coverage that paints it as some kind of uh, uh, backward country, some kind of you know remote, stuck in the past country, um, which is couldn't be further further from the further from the truth. So I wanted to avoid um, those kinds of uh, that type of Western stereotyping um, and and ignorance. Let's be perfectly frank about the country um, because it's a really fascinating place uh, geographically, culturally, his- in historical terms, uh, and it's had a huge impact on the uh, the world we live in today. Even if that history has uh, over the over the centuries uh, been uh, been forgotten beyond its borders. As I read your book, one of the things that occurred to me was what you were dealing with um, just from an environmental standpoint when you're in Bolivia. A lot of your chapters, you're either in sub-freezing temperatures or unbearably hot and humid conditions punctuated by these torrential downpours where you're getting soaked to the skin or you're getting eaten alive by a swarm of insects. This doesn't sound like your typical travel log. Um, vacation sandals and resort uh, on the beach with an, a drink with the umbrella in it. I very much had some delightful, relaxing moments with with a cocktail and a, a swimming pool and that kind of thing. But an awful lot of the research was, um, uh, yeah, v- very far away from the glossy travel Sunday supplements. Um, it, you know, Bolivia is an incredibly diverse place. It doesn't have a coastline, um, but it's you know a third of the country is high altitude in the Andes. Uh, you have a third of the country in the um, Amazon Basin, completely different uh, environment, of course. Um, there's huge wetlands. It has a share of the Pantanal, which are the world's largest tropical wetlands. Um, it has um, desert and scrub and lowlands and cloud forest. Um, so, and all of those environments have their own um, their own uh, challenges for your uh, for your travel writers and your travel authors, um, you know, to, to give you a couple of examples in the Salada Uni, which is the world's biggest uh, salt flat uh, in the Andean part of Bolivia. Uh, when I was traveling through this, you know, this four thousand meters above sea level kind of environment, so it's very cold. Um, but we 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 almost got stranded after after a uh, freak blizzard. We were dealing with gale force winds. You know, we stayed the night in uh, quite a rickety um, kind of a rickety hut, and the temperature fell to uh, minus twenty one degrees Celsius. I think that's around minus six Fahrenheit overnight. Um, on, on one visit um, to to the Salar, we you travel around by these by Toyota Land Cruisers. And we got in the the next morning, and the tape player. This will this will date the journey to a, to a certain extent for 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 listeners. The tape player was frozen; <laughs> it had frozen overnight, so so that so there was no music and stuff. And then to put that in complete contrast, in the in the Bolivian Amazon, you know, it's incredibly high humidity, um, and and it's you know, there's it's incredibly biodiverse. The Bolivian Amazon, you have some of the most biodiverse places on Earth, thousands and thousands of species. Uh, one national park, Medidi, has roughly ten percent of all of the birds bird species in the world. But they also have an awful lot of mosquitoes and biting insects. And um, right. as I may have mentioned before on this 
this podcast, mosquitoes and biting insects absolutely love me. And, um, you know, I love the Amazon. I love visiting there. It's a fascinating place, but I'm absolutely bitten to death by them. I think, um, uh, you know, I'm talking about 50, 60 kind of agonizing bites, um, kind of virtually all over your, your, your body. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was, that was definitely a challenge. In, another interesting weather condition, though, I got in the Bolivian Amazon um, on my most recent visit was something called the Suazo, which is um, uh, kind of in in, in uh, July, August time. You have these really powerful winds that come up from Antarctica, blow across Patagonia, and then you know flow through the centre of um, of uh, South America, including the Amazon. Uh, and it drops the, you know, in the Bolivian Amazon, it can often drop the temperature dramatically, results in these terrible rainstorms and uh, makes it really windy. So it's, it, it, it's, it was quite an impressive and also quite a challenging um, environment to uh, travel through. I also had floods in uh, in Santa Cruz, which is a tropical city. So I'm kind of literally knee deep wading through the city streets, uh, kind of backpack, backpack above my head to keep it away from the water. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I went through some challenges to do the research for this book, put it like that. You earned it, baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. You talk a lot about some of the environmental disasters that are occurring in Bolivia, both rapidly occurring environmental disasters and disasters that are happening in slow motion. Tell me a little bit about what's going on with the environment on a larger scale in Bolivia. And is there anything that can be done? Are they are they attempting to, um, you know, slow this down in Bolivia? And are they having any success? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted to do in this book, and I also try to do with my travel writing more generally, is to you know, not shy away or ignore the serious issues that are, you know, are facing the the country and the world in, in, in general. And, and there's, there, there's, you know, probably nothing, nothing greater than the climate crisis. So it's definitely something that I wanted to address in the book. And also Bolivia is really on the front line of the climate crisis. This is not a future, something that will happen in the future in Bolivia. It's happening now. It's happened for, you know, many, many years. Um, to give you a couple of examples, uh, Lake Pupo, which has a wonderful name. That's the second largest lake in the country after Titicaca. It was a huge lake. To put it in context, it's roughly the size of Luxembourg. Uh, now that evaporated a few years ago. And so you've, you know, you, you, you've got this, you, you have this huge, uh, huge lake that is now essentially a, a dust bowl. Um, and, um, uh, you know, there were millions of dead fish and birds that used to, used to have huge colonies of flamingos there. And on the shoreline, you had lots of, uh, indigenous villages, uh, where people often, often fishers, they relied on that for their, for their, for their livelihoods, their, their traditions. These places become ghost towns. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's really, this, this is something that, um, has happened in, in, in a few years. It's got lots of different, factors behind it but but the climate crisis is a massive one of those and it's also exacerbated lots of the uh the the others i mean this is this this is in the andean section elsewhere in the andean section of bolivia you've seen glaciers shrinking um you know to you know to give you a very frivolous example of that they used the near la paz one of the the major cities they used to have the world's highest ski resort which which you which used a glacier. When I first visited the country in two thousand and four, you could go skiing there. 
you know, when, when, I, when I went back in 2010, 2011, uh, the glacier had, had shrunk, it disappeared, and uh, and the ski resort had it, it, it taken with it. Um, you've also had kind of droughts and record temperatures in um, in the Andes section, and that's led to huge kind of mass internal migration. It's led to the growth of new cities, um, El Alto, um, which is next to uh, next to Paz, one of the fastest growing cities in uh, in in Latin America, and that's really happened over a you know a twenty thirty year period the other thing i also wanted to flag up because you know people who aren't so familiar with 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 bolivia often think of it as an andean country but as i mentioned before a third of it is in the amazon there's this huge kind of tropical lowlands as well and uh, bolivia and eastern bolivia specifically has been really badly hit by forest fires you know i think we've probably all seen the um the terrible footage of the uh the forest fires in brazil over the last few years that have you know destroyed swathes of the rainforest you know all of this, you know, it, it's the same ecosystem in, in eastern Bolivia, and Bolivia has unfortunately been equally hard, uh, equally hard hit. You know, um, people have lost their lives, animals have been, you know, you know, killed by them. You, you know, there's, there's, they have some incredible national parks there, really remote national parks, some of which are UNESCO World Heritage sites. They've been really badly damaged. And the you know the primary reason for that is is you know it's it's uh, it's using fires slash and burn on a massive scale to clear land for agribusiness you know for 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 farms across the across the region. Now all of this is pretty depressing, yes, <laughs> obviously. But you know I, I you know there are lots and lots of efforts within Bolivia. You know very um, courageous people, very you know engaged people, and organisations, charities. Uh, you know, include, include, including politicians who are aware of this in Bolivia, who are also taking action as well. So it's, um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to appear, you know, say that there are ways to deal with these kind of things. But it, it's, it, as a visitor to the country, it's stark. And if, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't need anything to bring the climate crisis home to us, really. There's no excuse to not know, know about it. But if you travel to Bolivia, you know, you can have no illusions about um, the impact that it has there, and that it is 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 having in other parts of the world, and is going to you know happen happen to to us in Europe and in North America too. I wanted to talk about one other topic before we get into the food. Is that hmm. the and it's related to the environment as well, which is the natural resources that are in Bolivia. Because as I'm reading your book, you thread together several chapters talking about mining and natural resources being stripped out of Bolivia, whether it's rubber or silver or tin. And it strikes me that this is just the same story getting repeated over and over again, Um, either some foreign corporation or some rich uh, robber baron comes in, strips Bolivia of their natural resources with a promise that it's going to lift up the economy as a whole and lift up all the people in Bolivia. It never happens. They The resources are gone and they leave with the money. And now there is something called lithium mining. And lithium is, of course, that ingredient that we all need in these electric batteries that we're producing. And Bolivia is a huge lithium producer. My question to you, Shafik, is are, are we just seeing history repeating itself again? Is this going to go down the same path as all these other um, bad stories that that I read about, about uh, natural resources in Bolivia? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to slightly fudge my, my okay, answer enough. to you and say, yes, 
and also no. Okay. Um, yeah, no, as, as you say, I mean, one of, one of the, one of the fascinating things when you, when you visit Bolivia, and particularly if you're not aware, um, about the history of, of, of this part of South America, which certainly in, 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 in the UK, people are absolutely not. It has this, it's, it, it sent out its resources across the world. It's really changed and helped to create the modern world, to create modern trade, to help, uh, create globalization. I mean, and the first thing of that was silver. So Potosi, which is one of the highest cities in the world, more than 4,000 meters above sea level. Uh, during the time, uh, you know, of the Inca, they discovered, uh, silver in this mountain that, uh, you know, it's this really hard to reach, inaccessible place. The mountain called Cerro Rico, a rich hill, essentially. Uh, and, and that's the richest, uh, source of silver in history. Um, you know, the, 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 there was a story that so much, uh, silver was mined from there during the colonial era, the Spanish colonial era, that you could build a, a solid silver bridge all the way from Potosi to uh, to Madrid oh my in, in Spain and still have enough silver left over to build a uh, uh, train to, uh, to to ride on on top of it. Now, all of this, you know, and this kick-started globalisation. You know, Potosi silver travelled, you know, across the Pacific to China, uh, you know, it helped to fuel the, you know, the, the Chinese economy. It paid for things, helped to pay for things like the, uh, uh, the Great Wall of China. And it also, after, you know, so much silver was coming onto the market that it also caused inflation and caused, you know, chaos as well. But this obviously came at a huge, huge cost. Uh, so Rico became known as the mountain that eats men hmm. because so many, uh, indigenous and enslaved Africans died, uh, mining it. Um, and it's really, you know, uh, eventually the silver ran out and it's, you know, it, it's quite a melancholy but beautiful place today. Um, but it's really, that's become kind of a metaphor for what has happened to, um, you know, Bolivians incredible resources ever since you know it was silver was followed by tin it was, became one of the biggest tin producers in the late 19th century uh simon patino was one of the richest men on earth um and he was a he was a, a tin baron and then at the same time um you had a huge rubber boom in the uh, in the amazon um, at the time, the Amazon was the only source of rubber. It was automobiles uh, taken off. There was a huge, huge demand for it. And so you had a, uh, you know, the, the most powerful rubber baron was, uh, uh, rubber baron rather was a guy called Nicolas Suarez, you know, who controlled a vast wave of the Amazon with brutal violence. Uh, again, the indigenous people bearing the brunt of it. But I mean, he controlled, uh, you know, a region the size of a country. You know, and he was, it was a remote, remote region at that time. And, um, yeah, so there was a lot of exploitation over, you know, over the kind of from the, the 16th into the, into the 20th century. And now Bolivia is, is, uh, is home to some of the largest lithium reserves in the world. I mean, I, I like to describe lithium as the, the, the mineral that powers, uh, the metal that powers the digital age. You know, we're only speaking to each other now. You know, via you know via uh, laptops because of lithium batteries. They're in our phones. They're in electric cars. They're used for all all, all sorts of um, you know you know vital pieces of technology. Now, unfortunately, in in, in Bolivia, the, the the lithium reserves are under uh, you know a very delicate ecosystem. Partly the Salado Uni, which is the the world's biggest salt flat, 
Again, to put that in context, this is a salt flat that's roughly the size of Jamaica. Um, and it's perfectly, you know, it, it's perfectly flat, perfectly white. It's a, it's an otherworldly, you know, mind-bending place to, to visit, surrounded by, um, you know, smoldering volcanoes and, uh, and, uh, and, and towering mountains capped with snow. Um, so, you know, so, the, the, but, but the, the, you know, the Bolivian government or several Bolivian governments have been determined not to repeat the, uh, you know, the mistakes of the past and to to use these reserves these these very valuable reserves in a way that actually benefits the the country and all and ordinary people to uh yeah to, to to manufacture goods there as well rather than just um take out the uh, you know exp export the raw materials but that's easier easier said than done there's lots of environmental uh consequences to removing the lithium from this you know this very delicate eco ecosystem and uh you know we're seeing this playing out in real time you know, it's kind of, it's still at the early stages. So hopefully, hopefully lessons will have been learned from the past. Um, I guess we'll see. That, that's not the most hopeful note that you're striking here, Shafik. Um, but understood, you know, I mean, they don't exactly have a history of of treating the, uh, the environment or the people who work it um, properly in Bolivia. Let's pivot to food because uh, I was I was struck that you had a lot of food stories in your book, and one of the places that really interests me was a place called Oruro. Is that the correct pronunciation? Oruro, yes, yes, it is. And I I'm fascinated by these sort of British outposts around the world. You know, like Gibraltar, where they try to create a little, you know, a little bit of England right there in the middle of Spain or uh, in certain places in New Zealand as well. When we were there, it's like they're, they're trying to make a little British town. Is Oruro similar to this? And do they have, are there British dishes that we can get in the middle of Bolivia? I'd say there were echoes. There were echoes of the British influence in in Oruro. I mean, it's 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 this this is a um, it was it was a tin mining town, so it, it kind of rode the boom of the nineteenth century. I think it was called the um, nicknamed the Chicago of of Bolivia for a time, and it attracted you know it, it was quite a cosmopolitan place for 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 a long time, and it attracted people from around the world. Uh, including, including, uh, you know, a, a, a number of, um, British traders, railway engineers, because it's also on the railway line. Um, and, and you had an awful lot of people who just arrived hoping to strike it rich, you know, from, uh, from, from the, from the mineral wealth. Um, and you can still see some of, some of, some of that, that, that influence in the, in, in the town today. There's kind of the old clubs that they would they, they would go to that are now faded but very atmospheric places to to visit now i mean arguably the, the you know the 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 longest lasting legacy um according to local legends so there's some dispute about this but according to local legends they created the chuflai which is uh, really the national drink of bolivia so that's a it's a potent mix of uh, singani uh which is a type of aguardiente a type of type of brandy uh, so it's a mix of that and and lemonade so now if you go across bolivia you know you will uh, you, you you will have that drink and and reputedly because you know obviously the british are big drinkers <laughs> um, uh, reputedly that's that's one of the longest lasting kind of um impacts of this uh you know the, this, this few decades where where, where you, you you had a lot of british and other and other nationalities um, flocking through this high altitude, quite remote part of uh, of, of Bolivia. 
This chew fly drink that, I, that I'm not familiar with um, sounds simple, simple ingredients, easy to make. Mm. Um, would you find this, you said national drink, so it must be available all over Bolivia. Are there any different twists or, you know, different ingredients or different ways that uh, it, it would be used that we might see it somewhere in, in the country? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's Singani, which is which is the which is the alcohol behind it, is the aguardiente behind this. You find this across Bolivia, and actually, it it, it has a lot in common with um, if you're familiar with pisco, which is yes. from neighboring neighboring Peru, and also neighboring Chile. That's a very contentious issue that I won't get into here. We can save that for another time. But it's you know, and there's the equivalent in um, you know, you, you have aguardiente in Argentina as well, and it's kind of. I mean, the origins of the drink are essentially it's it, it was when when the you know the the you know Spanish Catholic Church arrived over and needed um, you know and needed wine for you know for for religious services and mass and so they kind of created their own you know they brought over grapevines and uh, you know and that gave birth to both the wine industry and also um, uh, uh, Singani. But so Singani, you find a kind of across across. Um, Bolivia and really it's kind of it's a very um you know it, you can you can use it for lots and lots of drinks it works well with mixes it's also I mean the finest stuff is very nice to drink to drink neat as well so uh, so yeah it's something you get absolutely across the country and did you say what it's distilled from it's so it, it's a it's like a grape brandy essentially okay okay so yeah. maybe similar to a grappa yes yes yeah absolutely absolutely like, I mean lots of lots of countries have their own their own kind of version of this, but um, yeah, yeah. For, for listeners who haven't come across it, you can get it. You can get it in the states. Um, the the uh, the film director Steven Soderbergh, hmm. I believe, when he was filming, um, uh, I think one of the Che Guevara films right, right. in Bolivia, got a taste for it, and I and I believe he uh, he he has his own brand now. But it's it's, it's very much like uh, pisco. It's very much that that's and and it works in in similar ways. So if you can get your hand on the bottle, yeah, um, experiment a bit with it. Okay, there you go. Now, like I said, Shafik and I had a great long conversation about Bolivia, and this is just part one of that conversation. Next week, part two, where we talk about street food in Bolivia, the Bolivian wine industry, which I didn't know anything about really, uh, quinoa and coca leaves. So don't miss that. Until then, you can scratch that travel itch at DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about the best meal I've had in Portugal so far. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I've also posted links to Shafik's website as well as a link to where you can order his book, Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia, in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED176. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who makes chufli wine coolers, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 